0: Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and joining us this week is Mark Mullen, co-founding partner of LA-based seed firm Bonfire Ventures. Mark has a unique and varied background as he spent nearly 20 years as an iBanker before focusing 100% on startups in 2012 with Double M Capital. Mark has also been an active LP investor in over 20 managers over the years. On the show, we talked about how he and his partner, Jim Andelman, decided to join forces to start Bonfire after each running their own independent VC firms. We also spoke about things like what he thinks makes for a great fund manager, his view on the overall seed market today, and what helped him gain so much early success as a fund manager when he was first getting started. Hope you enjoyed this week's show, and let's get right to it. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to see you. Yeah, you too, Mark. So I, I've been excited to have this, and I know we've been trying to get this on the calendar for a while. But let's, you know, first start off with your background. You've, you've played a number of different roles, you know, throughout your career and many sides of the table. But tell us a little bit about your your background and how you got to starting Bonfire with Jim.
1: Well, for sure, and thanks, Samir. I want to thanks to you. You've always been very supportive of me and what we've done all the way back to when you were at FRB and talking to Double M. I remember being with you in Menlo Park, sitting in a coffee shop, talking about which investors I should go talk to. So I'll never forget that. And thank you. Uh, so I actually this is my second career. Uh, unfortunately, that means I'm a little older. But uh, uh, I was an investment banker for 20 years and I worked for um, a boutique investment bank. We we're a merchant bank as well. We, we made investments and we owned companies and we were an advisory firm. And I worked for a very famous um Man at the time, his name is Bill Daniels, and he's known as the father of cable television. We had a bunch of assets, like I mentioned. We owned, we started Prime Ticket, for example. We owned 10 percent of the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, we had a very unique. He had a very unique, uh, interesting career, and I got a chance to work with him for seven years before he passed away, at 80, and um, learned a lot from him, and then learned a lot from the people that had worked for him for many years, and they were my mentors. And even many of those, what I would call my partners at the former firm, and we can talk about that a little bit later when I talk about Jim, uh, they're all investors in my funds. And uh, nothing better than to build, still have those relationships with all those people that I kind of grew up with You know, from 24 to 40 years old. These are people that I grew up with as a, as a man, as a, as a business person. So, But I got to live in Paris and London and New York. Uh, I traveled all over the world. I met incredible people, incredible founders. I worked on deals in 30 different countries, uh, which means I worked with entrepreneurs from 30 different countries. Uh, I was either their advisor or investing in them or um, doing the M&A for their companies. And so really got an incredible taste of what's happening in the world back then, and also a credible taste of dealing with different types of entrepreneurs, uh, which I think has informed me and helped me become a VC. One of the things we did was also invested in funds individually. So our clients were people like Carlisle and Texas Pacific Group and Blackstone and others, at Goldman Sachs, and we had opportunities to invest in those funds. And so we did. And we also invested in companies directly. So I had a very early taste on what would have been called angel investing or fund investing uh, without actually calling it angel investing. Um, that helped you know, me both have a, an understanding of how funds are built, how they're run, how they're managed, the professional level, the professionalism in general of how these funds were managed. And so when we eventually, um, when Bill died, we sold all of his assets uh, over a three-year period, multi-billions of capital there for him and his estate, which is now one of the largest foundations in the United States. And then we still had the investment bank, which was 75 people, which is all advisory in, in telecom, cable, wireless, hosting companies, towers, outdoor advertising, data centers, that entire industry we grew up with and, and, and helped um, and helped build. And we raised a lot of private equity capital, and we did M&A. That's all we did. We did do IPOs and debt. The investment bank we sold in January of 2007 to RBC Capital Markets. So timing has been lucky, um, lucky and good, um, but they usually go together. And so we sold the firm in 2007. I was a senior partner by that time. And uh, had to stay for three more years at RBC. RBC is a great firm, uh, conservative Canadian bank that's outperformed everybody. They weren't allowed to invest in mortgages, and so when when the world crashed in 08, we were still in pretty good shape. So we felt very lucky about that. But you know, I grew up with a, as I mentioned, with the with a unique uh, boutique firm and a unique founder. And now I found myself working in a firm with seventy thousand employees. That just doesn't fit. And so I came out in 2010, uh, the day my lockup ended. And really, really, it was almost like a Friday. And on Monday, I was the COO of the city of LA. I got asked to become a senior advisor to the mayor, not because I knew the mayor. Uh, it was more to, They were trying to bring in private sector culture into, into the government. And I worked with some amazing people and did that for a year and a half. And that was my give back, as we say. Um, that was certainly my give back. In the meantime, I moved to LA. My wife was born and raised here. And didn't know much about LA, didn't spend much time here as a banker for sure. But uh, when I got here, I had some, some, some friends and I invested in a couple companies, one of them was called Edgecast, which was bought by Verizon. The reason I bring them up is because I've invested with them for several years and was their banker in the late 90s. And then also I was investing in funds and I invested in um, the first crosscut fund, the first up, one of the, the third upfront fund um, and some other folks. And when I, when, I, when I came out of the government, I realized that I was unemployable that I didn't want to ever work for anybody again, having just given you my career track. I had been angel investing. And as I mentioned, fund investing, I said, you know, I'm going to start a fund. While there's good people here, there were very few. And this is back in 2012, as you know. And very few funds. And I was like, I'm going to start a fund that specifically invests in, uh, and this is comical in hindsight. It said, I'm going to invest in the cloud and mobile. And back then you could say that. Because it was still kind of unique. You say that today, that's ridiculous, right? Everybody, Everything's in the cloud and mobile. But I said, I'm going to invest in the cloud and mobile. We're going to focus on B2B investments. Because that's actually unique. There's very few people doing that here, uh, particularly in Southern California. And now, as I mentioned before, I traveled all over the world. I now had young children. And one of the things is like, there's a huge market here in LA. I'm going to focus on Southern California companies. And so I raised Double M1. And um, I'm the largest LP in both double M1 and double M2. So I put my money where my mouth is. So it's no surprise that my partners and friends and others invested with me. And we really lucked out. I mean, we invested in the trade desk. We invested in Chow Now, um, Scopely. Uh, I can name a bunch of companies. There's almost four unicorns in that first fund. And these are legit, right? These were, these were companies that we were hoping to get to a billion dollars. Let's put aside the decacorns we were talking about last year. billion dollars was like crazy, so that's really where we focused, and then I raised fund two. And if you were to go back, and again, I'm going to touch on this a couple of different ways. If you looked at my fund, it was a seven and a half million dollar fund, Samir, as we talked before. It was professional because I was a professional, like I and I had invested in funds that were professional. Like this was, you couldn't tell it was a seven million dollar fund. You know, the reporting that we did, the the, the conversations I had with with investors and founders much more than just a, hey, startup fund, seed fund, more so than some of, the, some of the folks that are starting today. So it's much more professional and set up to grow. I always wanted to say like, we're going to just take this. If I can perform, I put another number on the next deck. If I can perform. I put another no- number on the next deck. We're going to do the same thing every time. I don't want to jump around and invest in climate one year, green next year, crypto the next year, software here next year, you know, we're going to focus on what we're going to do. And we've stuck with that.
0: And, you know, I think back, you know, when you did start Double M, and it was actually still pretty early in LA tech. I mean, LA tech was still thought of largely as media, right? There wasn't, you know, so much diversity in terms of the type of companies that were being founded. As you mentioned, in the early days, you did invest in these companies that went on to be, very large scalable companies, Scopely, the Trade Desk. If you think about your career preceding actually being a full-time investor, you know, working at an iBank, being with RBC, what do you attribute that early success? Because there are a lot of funds that have started or fund managers that have started to fund one. And there's a lot of different views right now on what, you know, increases the probability of success of getting into really interesting companies. Some people say, have a clear thesis. Others say it's more network and brand driven. What did you find in the early days that really led to your ability to get such a high hit rate with some really interesting companies with at the beginning a very small fund?
1: Well, part of it was was scarcity, right? So I wasn't really competing with that many people. I like to make a joke like I couldn't have gone up to San Francisco, or Silicon Valley, and said, "Hey, I'm raising a seven and seven half million dollars seed fund. Call me if you need some money." In LA, I could do that, and within a year, I was well known. I mean. Not to burst me up, but I was I was known already as an investor, and I had already been an in angel investing in companies. So there was Mark Mullen investing in companies, and then we really kind of formalized it, professionalized, and became a fund. Having said that, uh, 2012, 13, 14, I think people would agree was a unique time. So there was there was some luck involved in being able to invest capital at that time. But I think the third part was I worked my tail off. I mean, the, the, one of the greatest compliments I got. Was from one of my founders, he's like, um, who had already invested in, and then I saw him at some event. You can imagine how many events were going on, FRB party, uh, whatever it was. And he said to me, he "Goes, you're omnipresent. Like, you're everywhere." And I said, "Gotta be. You have to be." Now, you have to have some skill set to say, um, you can't just run around saying, "Hey, I got a hundred thousand bucks. I got two hundred fifty thousand bucks." Like, you actually had to provide some value. And I think my career. And my ability to have conversations with entrepreneurs and to be helpful right away because I'd already had a 20-year career was important. So I think when I met founders to start with, um, there was clarity from them that I could actually help them out. And that's what I was trying to do. But you still had to win the deals. And so once I got a hook and once I found some companies that I wanted to do and I was chasing and running and seeing the good companies, doing a couple good deals begets more good companies and good deals. You know, you start to build on that. And you have to keep that going. Like you can't mess with your reputation. Uh, and if you keep your reputation strong, then you, then you continue to feed off of that. And so I think there was some timing luck and some hard work luck.
0: You mentioned timing being an important part of the early success. And you're right. There wasn't that many early stage funders, especially where you were. And now the the, the world has changed over the last decade and the last few years, in particular, when you had hundreds of new fund managers coming to market in almost every single geography. And I I know you've spent a lot of time with other fund managers in as much as investing a lot of funds as an LP, having people through your Firestarter program uh, being scouts. And I'm curious, what do you look at as an identifiable edge that provides a manager or a scout in your case, Meaningful differentiation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that people need to keep in mind is that being a VC is hard. I think there is a perception that it's not. It it is hard, not just because of competition, but you have to get the right hits. You have to be available. You have to have skill set. You have to be a psychiatrist. You have to, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do to get to that point. And so it is not for the faint of heart. And really, um, uh, in some ways, you need to be able to. Answer the question both as a founder for a but a founder for that I might invest in. Why? Okay. I know it sounds silly, but why are you doing this? I sit there and go with founders all the time, particularly younger ones. Why are you doing this? Have you done the math? Like, let me do the math for you. Okay. You invest, you go out and you kill yourself to raise some money. You got to make good investments. You got to wait and wait and wait. And you're not going to make much money until you actually have some hits. And if you don't have hits, you're not going to make any money. So why are you doing this? You know, is it because it's cool or because other people are doing it? Or, you know, you were a front end developer at Google and now, you know, you think it'd be really cool to be a VC. So be careful what you wish for and come into it, understanding why you want to do this. And do you have the temerity and the personality. Do you have the personality, frankly, to be give 5% of yourself to 20 companies? At all times, or are you really good at deep, deep focus on one thing? And so you need to understand that there are different ways to. If you're going to build a VC fund, you've got to have the ability to manage lots of different things happening at once and do it well. And so I really want to know why. I'm of course checking for their professionalism. I know I'm using that word as I used before. You know, is the, are they understanding what actually needs to take place? Do they understand what an LPA is? Do they understand the basics? Of building a fund and what it takes to raise the money, how you close those people, then invest. There's a lot of things going on. So it's really trying to test them as to what and why they're doing this. I check for, work, for example, I want their, if there's a tangible track record, that does matter. But a lot of times there's not a tangible track record, particularly for the first seed, group, right? There's the angel record if they have it, and how I had, I used my angel record to do that. There may be an angel record, or there may be a very successful role they had in a prior entity that suggests that they have the temerity to be a successful VC. So you got to check that that track record of course that that's, that's basic. But I really checked for their relationships and how different they are and how unique they are and how they um, they utilize those relationships to get deal flow because that's the key. Key is to get deals. Key two is to close deals and you got to close and particularly in this last two years, we're all competing you know dollar is not not unique. A dollar is not unique. So why are you different? So really pushing and understanding them from the front end why they're doing it. And we don't invest in I don't invest in funds that will do what Bonfire does. So you can imagine my funds are a lot of underrepresented founders that are doing unique unique investments that I'll never see. We're investing in particular technologies that I won't see. Hardware we don't do at Bonfire. Um, real specific hard climate tech. We might do a climate software opportunity, but not climate tech. Um, some crypto stuff, um, just really spreading out. And it's almost a personal diversification. But I'll tell you what, with my investments in 20 funds, plus Bonfire has investments in six funds, I have a pretty good pulse on this market. I mean, I can see what everybody's doing, what companies are getting priced at, how people are outperforming or underperforming, what the market pulse is. And I think it's great to have this opportunity. Now, many of them have performed well. Um, I was in the first Freestyle Fund, the first Maven Fund. I'm in USB, for example, um, but a lot of funds here in L.A., MAC Venture Capital, Slosson 2045 Ventures, Arlen, uh, just a lot of opportunities. So I really like to dig deep here in this L.A. community so I really know what's going on, and I like to have that at that angle. So I, I kind of put them through all that stuff. You know, like the same thing I would ask if I was an L.P. looking to invest in double M or botfire.
0: Over the years, I've had so many conversations with people that have contemplated starting the fund in- I often do like asking them, "Well, why are you doing it?" because it is a long-tail business that takes a long time to actually make money, particularly as a seed manager where you might it might be your 8, 9, 10, 12 before you see your first carry check. And along the way, you're not you're not only, you know, raising smaller funds typically that don't throw off much in management fees, you're also making your GP commit that also, you know, takes away from your, you know, take-home pay every single year. And so it has to have this long-term commitment because each fund may last 15, 16 years. And when you do ask the question, I'm curious from your perspective, what is the right answer that you like to hear of why somebody's starting a fund? And what are some of the, the things that are more red flags in terms of, in your mind, somebody setting up, setting up a fund or a firm for the wrong reason?
1: Uh, when we get to the why, back to, do you really understand what you're setting up and how the math the mat works? And so they've got to be able to understand the long-term nature of it and what it takes to build that, 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 to be able to set yourself up for the long-term return if you're able to get it, as opposed to using or, or saying that VC is a, is, a, is a career track, right? Like, you know, I worked for seven years at a firm. I'm going to start a VC. It's the next move. It's a career opportunity. It's something. We'll see how it goes. Seeing how it goes is not the right mentality here. You can't just see how it goes because you've just committed every time we sign a new fund, right? We're all committing to nine to 14 years with both our investors and our companies and our partners. There is some serious commitment there. And so I like to look at how many jobs does this person had. You know, is this the seventh job? Are they, are they always looking for the big hit? Have they had a big hit? To be honest, having a big hit or making some money prior to starting your VC is great because, You don't have to worry about that long-term. You can commit to that long-term. And I think that's really what what people need to do. The the red flag, um, I also look a lot at team. And I'll bring this with Jim as well. So it's really hard to have partners. You may be friends at the front end, maybe childhood friends, maybe brothers and sisters, whatever. There are many different reasons why you might start a partnership with somebody, even founding teams of companies we invest in. There's different reasons to start a founding partnership. But oftentimes, and particularly in every situation with the, the, the um, car starter funds that we have, there's partners. And I want to understand the different dynamics between uh, the different relationships they have in their network and how they can get out and differentiate their network and get, and get deal flow. But really, like, are they coming together because it seemed to be, I, I need somebody who's better at this, and I found her. And she's good. And uh, she's friends of some friends of mine in college. And we put this thing together. and We're going to go out and raise. Um, I kind of really check, like, what's that relationship and how how strong is that before? Because it is not easy. Now, I was a partner at a boutique firm, as I mentioned before. I grew up in a partnership environment where, you know, we had a democracy, but there were a couple guys that ran the firm. That's just the way it is. But I understood the dynamics of partners and sharing benefits of the entire company with each other, as opposed to just single focus. If I do this, I'm going to get this. And so one of the things that that really has made this work with me and Jim is that we both, I had, uh, we both had uh, our own funds. We both had respect for each other before we ever partnered. So we knew each other for five years. We co-invested together. We became Confidants, because we were sole GPs in LA focusing on B2B software. And so I could see the way he worked. I could see how he dealt with people. And I could see what and understand and follow his reputation. And he could do the same with me. Then, when we started talking about partnering, it took us a year. It was not like a hurry. We, neither one of us were in a hurry. It was really a hey, let's think about this. How, what kind of firm do we want to build? What kind of uh, people do we want to have join us? What type of focus do we want to have? What are we going to be like? And at the end of the day, we are peers. I'm not trying to outdo him, and he's not trying to outdo me. So imagine a larger venture capital firm, younger partners, younger associates, principals, everybody's in that room trying to get up the stack. And, you know, competition for deals, competition for this, um, I'm better than this, et cetera. We didn't have to go through that. We're adults, we had our own success. Successes. We had our own reputations, which, in our opinion, were very solid. And so, when we came together, it was like when Jim Andelman goes out and talks about Mark Mullen. I trust what he's going to say about me or about Bonfire, et cetera. And I'm the same with him. Now, if you if you expand that to our entire team, same way with Brett and Jen and Tyler, I don't. I'm completely giving my reputation that I've built over the last 35 years to Jen and Tyler and Brett to go out and not fuck it up. And I'm not gonna do them that to them either. So we have this mutual respect and I think that's what's really worked for our partnership and we feel very lucky for that because I know it's hard to have partnerships.
0: I wanna come back to you and Jim in, in a minute, but you mentioned something that at least in my mind is a little bit different from some of the things I see, I've seen more recently where for a lot of the seed firms, the brand becomes a partner. You know, it's their their brand, they have, they're have they omnipresent on things like Twitter, maybe they have a large social following on other platforms. And at Bonfire, it really does seem it, it's Bonfire, that's the, uh, the brand. What do you see as some of the advantages of having a firm brand and how do you balance that between also having personal brands in terms of founders being able to relate to an individual that has some level of a voice that's independent?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to answer it from a different a couple of different angles. Um, we are not good at pounding our own chest. We have kind of liked having that reputation until the last couple of years, because there were so many people pounding their chests and tweeting and marketing. We never spent a dollar in marketing. We raised all of our funds. We always were of the mindset if we can perform, if we show performance, and I can lead with performance, and then it's followed up by this is I'm talking to LPs, right? We lead with performance and then those LPs start calling our founders. We win, we're gonna win. We're gonna win because we want them to get to that point of talking to our founders. Because once they get to the founders, those founders start talking about what we add, how we add value, what type of people we are what type of firm we are, but we got to get there. So we always have this mentality. If we can perform, we can have that conversation. And that was just how, you know, luckily we've had the performance, so we got there. But drafting and creating a track record or performance based on, you know, just pounding your chest is not the way we went about it. And I see that a lot, and I've seen that a lot. And because I'm an investor in all these funds, we are investors in these funds, I can see who who backs up the reputation. We, we of course, have our own personalities and um, the founders have to kind of know us to have those the, the gauge on what our personality is. We are different. And part of the part of the focus for bringing on Brett, Jen and Tyler is all five of us are very different. All five of us have different networks, relationships, skill sets, personalities. Uh, so we're not one, of, you know, we're not the same person. And so we hope to bring that in as a group. And that's what we try to add. This whole bonfire is the is the group and the, and the family that we have, as opposed to the individual. Because I can tell you, like if if I just went out and started saying, "Hey, I did trade desk and Scopely and blah blah blah," and, and here's my Twitter following, and here's my crypto following, here's my moonbird, etc. It's not, you know, I don't want that. Like we don't want to have people say, "God, bonfire is great. You should try to get Jim as your as your board member, though." Because he's nicer, or he's smarter, or you should try to get Brett because he can—he can build your company literally. Like he's a savant, right? So we want to be able to say we are a bonfire, and um, we are going to apply our own different skill sets to your company. There's leads, of course, but we're going to apply as much as we can all of our collective intelligence to you, as opposed to being a one-off uh, uh, personality. And it's just not our personality to use that word twice, in terms of. Uh, you look at our Twitter following. We
0: don't care. Well, at the end of the day, it's always you know it's tracker and it's cash on cash returns, and of course the uh, the firm has done extraordinarily well both individually before bonfire and then certainly post bonfire. Although I know it's still in the uh, in the early days, you're speaking a lot to this cultural component of the firm, which is a lot different than what we you know saw with a lot of the big firms as they grew. You had people around the table investing a single pool of capital with sometimes very different incentives and motivations. And for you, it's really, this is the team, we're all equal. Ultimately, any company that takes money from Bonfire gets the entire team and experience. That is all aligned to do one thing, which is optimize the company's opportunity to build a great company. And that all starts typically with the founders. Like If you think about startups, whether companies know it or not, the culture is codified in the early days with the first few people and with the founders. And you and Jim coming together, you know—you were both running firms at the time. So Jim running Rincon, you running Double M. What went into those initial conversations to get to this shared ethos? And I know you had worked together, but it's different when you're coming together from two different firms and creating a firm together.
1: So the first thing we had to do was share track record because as you know in venture capital unless you're an LP no one knows what anybody's track record is and you can be a VC for 10 years without telling anybody what your track record is right because you can you can pause or so we okay you ready Jim I'm going to send my excel spreadsheet you're going to send yours same time so we we can see what everybody's doing cuz we've been talking a big show about how how great we are in LA let's show each other's track records and it was great like I'm like Wow, and he said, "Wow." And we like, "Okay, so got that part." Of that. This is part of that whole peer part, and actually believing in each other and trusting each other, and having made good investments prior without us actually making those decision together. And so we were able to come together that way. Technically, we did not merge Double M and Rincon; those are still completely separate entities. They have separate investors, et cetera. We still manage those entities. Um, we're at the we're at the harvest phase for all, for both of the, all those entities, so it's worked out really well in terms of timing. And so Bonfire was a brand new start, a brand new clean LP list. Of course, we took all of our LPs from prior funds, but it was really a brand new start. And we started out, and we shook hands, just so you know, on a chairlift, just to tell you how serious this business is, right? We shook hands on a chairlift. And then we tried to come up with a new name because we're big skiers. It was like Slalom Ventures, uh, Mountain High Ventures, you know, all these silly names. And we're so thankful we came up with Bonfire because it's, it's turned out to be a good name, but that's the kind of stuff. So we, so we really, we, we shook hands and the final phrase, I don't know who said it was 50-50, 50-50, shook hands. And that's really where it started. Okay. And so we of course brought in team and, and share, everybody's sharing now and, and that's worked out extremely well. But one of the things that we recognized is that if we're going to be involved with these companies, we can only scale ourselves so far. And even now, we all can't be 100 percent on every company. Right? That's just that's just like we try to be providing, we try to provide ideas and and in context. Everybody called me for MA ideas or structuring. Everybody calls Brett for some sort of go-to-market SaaS, build your build your sales compensation model, all these things that we have, we can just throw at each other. But there's really a lead. Jim and I recognized if we wanted to be bigger, meaning take more ownership. Be the lead in all the deals we did, which is both of our ambitions. Get more ownership. You need to scale by bringing on people and bringing on people's heart. You just don't go hire a partner. And so we recognize both that we, we can't continue to do this on our own. Like, I can't just keep... I could. I mean, that's the irony. is like, I could have raised a $25 million fund every three years, just called it double up, three, four, five, and so could have Jim. But then... You're just this, you know, you're not not this brand. You're not this entity that we've now created, which is our objective. And that's why we were smart enough, frankly, to understand that different skill sets, different relationships, different thought processes worked really well if we put them together as opposed to kept them separate. And so as we've built the team and added, we continue to focus on that. We added Jim Tyler, I mean, Tyler and Brett and Jed, same thought process. Like, how do they make us better?
0: It's interesting that you came together and had this common belief of how there would be so many synergies of creating a better firm together. And we've seen so many small firms, especially nano funds, let's say sub 15 million. And I haven't heard conversations about people saying, should we partner up with this other group here that's kind of in the same place? Because, you know, we can grow up as a firm, you know, the partnership seems to have some synergies. But what needs to really happen for those things to be successful? Because we haven't really seen too much of this where, you know, somebody's running fund A, somebody's running fund B. They decide to, you know, effectively continue to run those, but then come together. And and it's because partnerships are so hard as it is. And once you get on a path of starting a firm, it's almost like, do we really want to start over and create a brand new franchise with somebody else? When there's so much risk in doing so, for all the people that are listening that are contemplating this, how do you de-risk it? I know you'd like
1: to, me to give you an answer that that is uh, positive,
0: but um, I, I
1: don't know of a situation. If you're talking about VCA merging with VCB and the two partners at VCA come together with the two partners of VCB, I don't see how that can happen. Both technically with the different LP bases the way they run their firms, the way they make decisions. The only way it works is if those partners form a new entity, in my opinion. Or what always seems to happen is one partner leaves one fund, another partner leaves another fund, and they start their own fund. I don't see how, if this is where this market's going to go with, with the proliferation of seed funds that were formed over the last three years, which we all know about, and which I'm invested in some of them and, uh God, God bless them, because I did the same thing 12 years ago. So I, uh, 10 years ago, I don't have, I think it's great. But to try and think about, well, you know, we're not going to be able to raise fund two. I think that's the big question that's going to come out of this market. That's going to be a lot of problem, right? Because fund two comes off of early wins in fund one. A lot of people had early wins in fund one, primarily markups. And now everybody's questioning the markup value. And that's fair, even in our portfolio. And so, and then, then there's an LP database, an LP base. It's like trying to invest in the the name brands or go deeper into the things they're already in. I mean, you talk to LPs all the time. They're not really looking for new, new funds right now. And so that fund two is going to be hard. I don't mean to be negative. And so if the idea is for one fund one to merge with another fund one, that's going to be a hard thing to, to accomplish given the mentality of the founders of those firms, which is entrepreneurial, you got to take them together. That it's almost a, a marriage of convenience, unless perhaps the founders of both funds have known each other for a long time, like Jim and I did. But I think it's going to be it's it's not going to be the solution. And imagine you're an LP in Fund A, and you don't like Fund B, or their performance isn't as good, but you got the your, your founders of Fund A are saying we should merge with these guys because we like them. And the founding partner, she's great, she knows what to do and, and you're like, wait i i don't I didn't invest in them I invested in you and so there's gonna be a, it's just gonna be awful
0: well you you, you mentioned the the LP side and, and without a doubt it's it's difficult right now I mean the public markets have taken such a beating and it's dragged down in particular I mean tech stocks, which were getting insane multiples last year, you know I mean we saw some of the saAS companies getting. 30, 40x multiples, and that sort of filtered into the private markets at pretty much all stages. I think the seed market, generally speaking, has continued to be somewhat insulated, although we are seeing you know deal activity slow down. But from a fundraising standpoint, this is probably the toughest time to raise that we've probably seen since uh, 2008, 2009. Now that we know that there's some you know, longer term permanence to this. This is not like March of 2020 when we had really two or three months of difficulty and then the Fed intervened. From an LP standpoint, how were those conversations when you got you and Jim got together, both on your LPs and Jim, and how difficult was that first fundraise to be able to provide the type of narrative that people really got behind?
1: Yeah. And so what was interesting is that we each had the same investor coincidentally, and it's a family, it's a family fund. They were investors, in Rincon and, and investors in double F and they like both of us and like our track record. Foundry group, everybody knows Lindell was at the time getting ready to launch their fund of funds and was evaluating and got to know Jim on their own and got to know me on, on my own. As we were talking to them about individually, without even talking about being partner, individually about raising money from them for our next funds. The conversation was around, and this is before solo GPs became so hot last year, which I don't know how hot that is, but solo GPs was not a thing that people liked in 2016. They were done with those or worried about them. And I was, I was explaining to people that I am in the process of bringing on a partner. And Jim was explaining to people, I am in the process of bringing on a partner. But because we hadn't signed the deal and because we didn't want to jinx anything and because we wanted to fill out the potential LP base, we weren't saying who it was. Now, I remember two distinct conversations that we lucked out from. One was the conversation with our family office where I said said to him, I just want you to know, I'm thinking about partnering with Jim Adler. And Jim had the same conversation. And the first thing he said was, you do that, I want to be the biggest investor. So you can imagine, like, I almost go goosebumps right now just thinking about that conversation. Like, Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so that's, that's good validation. The second conversation I had with Lyndall and Jacqueline, and I can remember having it, which restaurant we were in LA and Lindell's just hammering. It's like, well, what's going on with the partner thing? Who, who is it? Why won't you tell me? I'm like, just, just a little, you know, I'm a little nervous. I'm a former banker. We don't talk about anything until it closes, you know, like don't want to jinx anything. He's like, just well, what is it? And I'm like, okay, so I'm thinking about partnering with Jim Mandelman. He says, "You guys get together. We're going to back that." And that's the two conversations that we had, and we're like, "Okay." And I remember calling Jim in the car on the way out of the restaurant, saying, "Here's the. Con- I guess we got a partner, man. I- Here's the conversation I just had with Lyndall." And he's like, "Oh yeah, let's go." And so that's really what 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 pushed us into that that decision. And then we felt confidence that we could then go to our investors who were in Rincon and Double M and say to them. Look, if you like me, if you're happy with the way I'm doing it, you should be happy with this part, you should be twice as happy with this partnership. And they believed us or trusted us. And so that's how we launched the, the fundraiser. And it was um, it was December of 2016. We invested in five companies before we named it Bonfire, before we closed the fund. So we got some of our LPs to actually commit and invest money that we were able to invest in five companies so that as we went out to raise the fund, we had five investments already in the fund. We had some names attached to the LP base and we were able to raise that first fund. That's how it happened.
0: Such a great story. And, and there's always these little inflection points that people always remember that make a firm. And it's hard to believe it's been six years since Bonfire has been started. And so much has changed in the, in the seed market. You, you mentioned Solo, GP, some of the managers you backed. And we've talked at length about how much the, the environment has proliferated. Now we're in a very different environment. How do you assess, and just from a global standpoint, how do you assess the, the health of the seed market today?
1: I, I'm only guessing, because it's hard to get all the numbers, as you know, um, or at least parse through all the information we're getting every day, whether it's good news or bad news. I, I still believe there's quite a bit of dry powder on the sidelines for seed funds that were raised, particularly last year and even finishing up funds that were raised in 2020. So I think there's still a lot of capital. Now we turn the tables back to the founders. Founders got the upper hand for sure over the last couple of years. Not necessarily call it the upper hand, but there was more of a founder-friendly environment. There was more of a pricing valuation environment that was very founder-friendly. And I would imagine that there are plenty of cases today where founders took money from people that weren't really value add, it was just money. And now they're struggling and where do you go? And this is back when we start to bring around the bonfire brand, like, you know, and we think that's going to put us in an advantageous position, particularly this year and the deals we're signing recently. As as recent as the day we signed a new deal where we're like, hey, um, we only do B2B software. We've only ever done B2B software. Call any one of our founders. As a matter of fact, when we start the process of going back and forth with the founder to see if we can get a deal done, they say, hey, can we do some references on you? And we're like, go to our website, pick any logo, tell me who you want to talk to. Because it's kind of, of course, I'll give you the five founders who love me if you want me to give you my five founders. But go to any logo and pick it, and we'll introduce you to those people. Like I said when I earlier in this conversation, if I get the LP to want to talk to our founders, we're going to win. If I get the, if I get these founders to want to talk to our prior founders, we have a good chance of winning. Now, where we get caught and have gotten caught over the last six months or a year is on price. I, I can't think of a situation where we lost a deal other than price over the last year, and that's not going to be the case going forward. So, deals we're gonna we hope to win deals. We hope to differentiate ourselves by saying we do we stick with what we do. We've done it very well for a while all we're trying to do is get better at b2b software seed lead investing and that's what we do and so it actually in some ways makes it refreshing maybe not the right word but we're all being inundated with deal flow and have been i mean the amount of as you can imagine um, inbound cold deal flow that we get and everybody's getting is is really high but i can look at it immediately and say okay they're raising 10 million or they're raising NA, A, or they're pre-seed, or they don't have revenue, or they're in, um, we don't do deals outside of the United States. We just continue to, the, our funnel is here, and I narrow it very quickly. And then we focus on the companies that fit our profile, and then we try to find the best ones in that profile. It's how we, um, it's how we manage ourselves, frankly, and how we try to get better and better at doing exactly that, as opposed to changing around and saying, you know, it's a pretty cool A deal. I mean, I know it's, uh, I know it's $40 million pre, and we don't do A's, and it's a $10 million A, and we're going to put in $2 million, and we don't get the lead seat, we don't get the board seat. We don't do that. You know, we just say no, and in a nice way.
0: I want to maybe end with a question that's a little bit more personal, given that you have had, as you alluded to earlier and actually said, You've had two acts as, uh, in, your, in your career. You had 20 years as an investment banker, now almost effectively a decade as a VC. If you think back on all of the lessons that you've learned in terms of being a professional, what do you think is the one career lesson that most stands out to you right now that acts as your true north?
1: I like to play the outsider VC card. And, and it's kind of true, even though I've now been in it for a decade. So it's harder and harder to say, you know, I'm, I'm not really a VC, but I try to play the outside VC card because I didn't, I'm not in Silicon Valley. You know, we're, we're a little market that people used to always ask us, by the way, no one asks us about LA anymore. That was the, the conversation we had to defend every day for the first six years, you know, from 2012 to 2018 was like, is LA big enough? Do you have enough companies down there? We don't even have that conversation anymore. So that's great. But I play the outside VC card um, only because of the the, tr- the career that I had before, and then I have luckily been and worked with so many different types of entrepreneurs and things, that I've seen so many situations and been involved with so many situations. Stressful, right? I've done I've done ten billion dollar M A transactions, right, and I've done little deals as well, and so all these things play into being just a little bit more of a rounded uh, professional. I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a coach. You know, all these things are true though. You know, I've invested in over 150 companies in the last 10 years through all the funds and individual stuff. You know how many you know how many founders are investors in Bonfire? 30. So founders that we've backed prior are now LPs in our fund. You know how many of those people have had babies, gotten married, 26 babies in the last five years. And I never expected when I invested in Scopely with Walter Driver. He wasn't even married. He's now married and has three kids. And I just had dinner with him, you know, like we're friends now. So I wasn't actually expecting to come into this environment and make investments and then wake up 10 years later and have 26 nephews and nieces and, you know, 200 <laughs> 100 new friends, not just founders, but all the VC community and the community like yourself and other banks and the lawyers like we have. It's an incredible uh, network that I've been able to be part of. All started only in the last 10 years. And so I wasn't expecting that. But way, way I kind of think about it is I can tell you situations where I had a I had a poor impression of somebody by reputation, excuse me, by by perhaps reputation alone. And the number of VCs that I have met, big name people, who are fantastic people, is great. It's surprising to me. And I know we get, you know, VCs like to get, they like to slam VCs. By the way, as a former banker, guess who slammed bankers the most? VCs. So I'm always defending bankers to VCs. But I can tell you, like, I have have made the mistake of having assumed that certain individuals were not great people, and I was wrong. So that's some of the, 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 the things that I have learned that I'm trying to be more than ever still learning Still meeting, I mean, it is it is really cool sometimes to meet some founders and we're just like, wow. Uh, like, I met this 19 year old the other day. And I was like, uh, I was not anywhere near what I didn't know what you're talking about when I was 19. I don't know what you're talking about when I was 29. So, we do get to meet some incredible people. And that's a big uh, plus and bonus that I wasn't expecting. And so, if that's the case, you know, have an open mind continue, that's going to continue. We're not going to stop. we just raised two new funds. We're not going to stop investing in new people. We're not going to stop making new relationships. And so it's been a very, very great ride. We're in the early stages.
0: yeah, it reminds me of you know some of the best investors name brand ones that I think really highly of, and you know I've asked them what makes a great investor, and they always say, you know, it's continuous learning. having an open mind on learning from people that don't have the same level of experience but come from a different lens. It is a long-term people business. It's really, you know, it's really cool about what you said is that you actually remember the number of kids that have been had by your community over the last five years. So I it really does speak to, you know, the type of firm you've built, the reputation. And Mark, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and providing some of these thoughts. It's been great to, uh, to watch the uh, the growth. And as I mentioned, it's hard to believe it's been six years.
1: Okay. Thank you, Samir. All the best.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mark. To learn more about him or Bonfire Ventures, be sure to go to VentureUnlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.